passage I'll be preaching from is Zephaniah chapter 3. That's a tougher book to find. That's okay. It's on page 790 of the Bible that is in your pew in front of you. Uh, While you're turning there, I want to come back to uh, what what Will said about our um, year-end annual report that we've put together. Um, Our communications and design team did a lot of work on this. It's really, really well done. I want to encourage everybody... Um, If you're visiting with us, you're welcome to grab one just to see uh, what's going on in the life of our church. But if you're a member, regular attender, would love for you to get one of these. They're they're, um, out in the narthex on the table. Uh, Just one per family, as Will said. But it's just filled with all that God is doing in our church. And it it really is overwhelming. And as you celebrate uh, what the Lord did in 2019, uh, we also want it to be our transition towards 2020. And um, the reason why I say that is um, an important part, you heard me say this last week, but an important part of uh, ministry life uh, as as it pertains to the budget is year-end giving from the membership, uh, where we want to ask those who call TCPC home, of course, we we ask and challenge to be regular tithers, but as you're considering year-end donations... Uh, we would love for you to consider your local church for that. There are many worthy causes to give toward, but we would love for you to consider uh, a year-end donation to TCPC. Um, what is going to be collected at the Christmas Eve service is, going, is not going to go toward our general budget uh, year-end giving kind of stuff. Uh, that, that is reserved for our missions partnership. So in addition to that, we do want you to give generously to that. But um, next Sunday will be the last Sunday of this year, and then uh, you can see in your... Um, in, in the announcements when the church offices will be open and closed during the Christmas season. So you can drop by and drop that off. You can bring it uh, next Sunday uh, to that service. Um, but as you read all the exciting things that went on in 2019, just know we have bigger plans for 2020 and a bigger budget for 2020. And so we would love for you to partner with us in all that the Lord is doing financially. All right, our passage is Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Let's give our attention to God's word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in At that time, I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. We believe that, Lord. We believe that your word stands forever. We do not. We are like grass, our glory is like the flowers of the field, and it withers and falls. But transcending all the generations of grass 
is the enduring, perfect word of God. And so we do believe what we just read, this amazing expression of your love for your people. We believe it endures forever. We believe it cannot be changed or corrected and it cannot fail. It is true and it is given to us in love. And so I pray that you would give us the ability to believe it, to feel it, to apply it, and help me to deliver it in such a way that your people are fed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our series through the themes of Advent, and this week we come to love. Now, each of these themes uh, that we've considered, I I have argued, bears kind of its own unique uh, challenge for us. They are all indispensable to the human soul, but they are all, for different reasons, a little elusive to all of us. When we talked about hope, uh, we consider whether we even see hope as a good thing. We talked about joy last week. We considered whether we see joy as a crucial thing. Now, when it comes to love, we know it's good. We know it's crucial. However, our problem with love is whether it's true. Perhaps more specifically, I I suppose it's best to say whether it's true for you. Out of all the themes of Advent, this is the one we have the hardest time accepting for ourselves, much less indulging it, reveling in it, delighting in it. When it comes to the love of God, we struggle so deeply to believe that it's actually true for me. And for some of you here, struggle, the word struggle isn't even the right word. It feels downright impossible to accept. One of my seminary professors likes to tell a story. It's one of my favorite stories, or at least um, most memorable stories from my time in seminary. So I might have shared it with you before. But, but he tells a story, he, he was a preaching professor, and he tells a story to his uh, um, class um, every semester when he has new preachers gathering together to learn how to preach. And it's a story about his, uh, from his first calling out of seminary. So he went to seminary, he left, he went to uh, spend time pastoring and then uh, felt called to get his PhD and then go back into academics. But anyway, out of seminary, he moves to this small country church for his first calling. And as uh, young seminary graduates are notoriously known to do, he immediately diagnoses all of the problems of the congregations, all of their issues. And in one of his first sermons, he just unloads on his congregation. And after the service, an old lady who'd been a member there for many years walks up to him, points a shaking finger in his face And says to him, I've been fighting my whole life to believe God loves me. And I'm not going to let you convince me otherwise. And he tells that story to preachers in training as a way to warn us about arrogance and harshness in the pulpit and so forth. But the story always stuck with me. Because of the way this dear old saint of the Lord speaks of her journey as a lifelong fight to believe that God loves her. 
the longer I'm in ministry, the more I completely sympathize with that. Do you know what I have discovered is perhaps the number one job description of a pastor? To convince you all over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that God actually does love you. Yes, through counseling, yes, through small groups, yes, through all that, but to stand in this pulpit every Sunday and remind you God loves you. It's difficult to to accept for whatever reasons, a life of failed love, a life of betrayal, whatever reasons we give, it's just hard for us to accept that God loves me. And one of my go-to passages of scripture to convince our people of that is the one we are looking at this morning. I love all six verses here. I wish I could preach through them all, but I really want to just focus on the most famous one, that amazing promise from verse 17. And I wonder if this Advent season, you could actually believe that those precious words in verse 17 are actually true for you. Let's consider them in two ways, the nature of God's love and then the fulfillment of God's love. But let's just start with the nature of God's love that we see here. This is by far the most famous passage from the book of Zephaniah. Um, Very familiar to many of you. And so when people think about the book of Zephaniah, they think of it as kind of this beautiful, poetic expression of God's love. But you need to know that this passage actually feels out of place, very out of place from the rest of the book. Zephaniah prophesied during a, um, an incredibly dark and rebellious time in Israel's history. There was idolatry and rebellion rampant everywhere. And as a rebuke, God sends them Zephaniah. And he has a harsh rebuke for them. The book is just one scathing judgment after another, except for the last six verses I read. At the end of Zephaniah's scathing prophecy, it takes this unexpected turn from some of the harshest words that you're going to find in the Bible to some of the most tender, intimate, and affectionate words that you're going to find in the Bible. And this peculiar flow of the prophet's writing is itself conveying an important message. And this is the message. When it's all said and done, love is destined to be the enduring word of the Lord. The conclusion of Zephaniah is a God who despite the rebellion of his people, despite what his people deserve, despite his very righteous and just anger, despite all of these things, it is as if God cannot help himself. He simply cannot not love his people. And when I say love, I mean love. Look at the nature of it in verse 17. It's going to challenge our conceptions of what it means to be loved by God. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one he will save. And then listen to the three he will statements. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. 
Consider the nature of those three he will statements. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Rejoice with gladness. That is compounded joy. Joy with gladness. Do you know what that is describing? That's giddiness. It is divine giddiness and it's all over you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The second one, he will quiet you with his love. That is a love so tender, intimate, affectionate that it literally is able to silence us. It is common to be silenced out of fear. I don't want to say anything here because I fear repercussions or whatnot. But it is a rare thing, perhaps something only lovers know, to be silenced because of love. I am so loved that I'm speechless. He will quiet you with his love. The third one, he will, he will exult over you with loud singing. Do you know what that's just, do you know what I just said? That is relationship with God and his people reversed. We aren't singing our exaltations and love and praise to him. He's singing it to us. I mean, think about those words. Exalt with loud singing. Doesn't that sound like something out of the Psalms? One of the Psalms of praise. Doesn't it sound like something we should use in a call to worship that we are to exalt with loud singing toward our God? But here it is God exalting over us with loud singing. The point I'm trying to make is that there is something about this passage that should almost feel uncomfortable to us. It's one thing to say God loves us. We can handle that in some distant conceptual way. But this description of God's love almost feels irreverent. God giddy over us? God exalting over us with loud singing? That feels disrespectful even to say about a transcendent, holy, exalted God. But that's what we need. We don't need a theoretical and generic vision of God's love. We need a vision of God's love that makes us squirm. So let's get uncomfortable with this. Can I just say what maybe you should be thinking? This verse doesn't sound like a description of a transcendent God. It sounds like a lover. Can't you imagine that, those words being penned to someone you love? And as irreverent as it may feel, the Bible does invite us to see our God this way. Of course he is the God who causes us to tremble in the presence of his holiness. And he is at the same time the God who causes us to tremble in the presence of his affection. You've probably heard me make this point before. I know I have in my preaching, but it bears repeating this morning. At our church, we, we, have, a, we have a covenantal, what's called hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the scriptures, which is essentially, we believe, it's, it's one story pointing to the story um, as 
Cy Lloyd-Jones puts it in Jesus' storybook Bible that every story whispers his name. We believe the entirety of scripture is a revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every word we read in some way points to Jesus in the end. But there is one part of the Bible that makes that hermeneutic principle uncomfortable because the Bible had to go and inspire, infallibly inspire the Song of Solomon. It's the book we don't really know what to do with, right? A poetic expose of a lover reveling in sexual exploration. Okay, let's get uncomfortable, shall we? If we believe, as we should, that Jesus is the true and better Abraham, if we believe, as we should, that he is the true and better Moses, he is the true and better David, then we must believe he is the true and better Solomon. He is the true and better lover of our souls. The deepest levels of intimacy and rapture within the God-ordained beautiful act of sex are a foretaste and signpost of God's intimate, rapturous love for his people. Let me quote someone respectable here so you don't call me crazy. Let's go with St. Augustine, okay? He's pretty respectable. Uh, most influential theologian in history of Christendom. Let me, let me share his journals with you, okay? This is what he said to God. You tell me what this sounds like. Is he talking to God or his wife? You pierced my heart and I fell in love with you. What do I find in your love? A touch, a voice, a fragrance, an embrace, which is for my inmost self. Something that is not limited by space. Something not snatched away from me by the passing of time. Something no wind will blow away from me at scent. Something I may savor undiminished, a union from which nothing can tear away from me. Is he writing to God or his lover? And the answer is yes. Can you conceive of God this way? Or are you too dignified? Are you too hardened by the failed loves of this world? Are you too macho of a man? Are you too independent of a woman? Are you too PCA? Too good a theologian? To let your theology go here? If your theology doesn't have room for a God like this, your theology is deficient. And listen, this is only proven true when the prophecy actually comes to pass, when that day that Zephaniah speaks of comes to pass. If you think this vision of God's love and Zephaniah is uncomfortable, just wait until it comes to fruition. Let's look at that, the fulfillment of God's love. Now we move to Advent. Notice something here, not just in verse 17, but really the whole passage. I'll emphasize it for us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise. I will bring you in. I will make you renowned, make you renowned and praised among peoples. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This promise of love is a promise of anticipation. This is an Advent passage. 
There is coming a day when God will do something that will both prove and accomplish just how deep is his love for his people. So what does he do? He comes for his beloved. He himself comes. So enraptured by love for his people that he chooses the most inconceivable and unbecoming act we can ever imagine a deity doing. Like a lover humiliating himself for his bride because he just doesn't care. You know, the buddy, the elf. I'm in love and I'm love. I don't care who knows it. It's humiliating. I don't care. God becomes man that he might actually love us the way Zephaniah says he loves us. The manifestation of his love is even more uncomfortable than the description of his love. In other words, if you think it's irreverent to speak of God's love like we've been speaking of it, then consider how uncomfortable is the incarnation. Our God helplessly crying out to his weary mother in the middle of the night because our God needs her breast milk to live. Our God having one of those nasty diaper blowouts, you know, up the back. Our God being, you know how it works, held by a family friend that's so excited to meet the new baby. And of course, that's the moment where our God chooses to spit up on the friend. Our God uttering his first words, stumbling about as he takes his first steps, giggling uncontrollably as any toddler can. You know, we get so used to the picture of, we get so numb to the picture of God as an infant that I I like to take the incarnation to God as a toddler because that's where it really stretches my imaginations of the incarnation. Because we're so used to the baby in the manger. He's a toddler. Y'all, this is what we believe. (laughs) Can you believe that? We believe this stuff. And we're just getting started, by the way. You think God in a cradle is uncomfortable? How about God on a cross? Theologians call all of this the humiliation of Christ for a reason. This is humiliating. Why? To make Zephaniah come to pass. To turn promise into reality. To make his love for us move from something he has proclaimed to something he has done. Return to verse 17 one more time. The Lord your God is in your midst. You do realize that should terrify you, right? These words are echoes of Eden after the fall. In the very beginning of Genesis, we are told that the Lord God was in their midst in the garden of in the garden with Adam and Eve. But after their sin, it says that they hid from God in the midst of the tree. God asks, why are you hiding from me? And they say, we heard the sound of you and we were terrified. As well they should be. To be in the midst of a holy God is the greatest fear any sinner can have. And yet Zephaniah speaks as if it is our greatest delight. How is this so? Jesus, Jesus alone. He transforms God in our midst from dread to delight. 
If you look at the promises to us in verse 17 that we meditated on, they are the antithesis of what Jesus came to endure. Jesus was despised and rejected so that God might rejoice over you with gladness. Jesus screamed in agony so that God might quiet you with his love. Jesus had judgment poured out over him so that God might exalt over you. When Zephaniah promises such scandalous love from God, it would mean equally scandalous suffering for God. And yet, apparently, you are worth it. I don't, if you, if you come after me, up to me after the service and say why, I'm telling you my answer now. I don't know. I don't know why he loves me like this. Only he does, but apparently he does. Apparently, he is so in love that he would do anything for his beloved. Do you believe this? I want to ask you the question of all questions this Advent. Does God love you? Thank you for the yes, whatever child said that. Does God love you? At the end of the day, that is the question of questions, and of course children know how to answer it. But then we move on in life and forget that childlike answer. Does God love you? And when I say love, by the way, what I mean by that is love, not tolerate, not put up with, not Jesus died for them, so I got to let them in. I'm talking about love. Does he love you? Now, if you do not belong to him, if you are refusing his love that he is offering in Jesus, then that answer is a bit complicated, okay? So let me explain. He loves. God is love. But for you, it's an estranged love. He has let you chase after your lovers. He watches you endure the suffering of failed love after failed love, longing for you to come home to his love that will never fail you. To come home before it's too late, by the way. Because the one you spurn is, after all, your God. And there will come a time, there will come a day, when the one who loves you must judge you. And though he sentences as a judge sentencing the one he loves with a broken heart, but he, yes, must do what is just nonetheless. Therefore, his sentence will be just, and it is your destiny that you have chosen for yourself. He will say to you once and for all, very well, thy will be done. I will give you the eternity you have always wanted, void of my love. Why would you want that? Come to your senses Christmas 2019 and come home to the one who loves you. Now, for you lovers of Jesus, the answer is not complicated at all. So quit complicating it. Does God love you? Yes, he does. What's complicated is accepting it. But what you need to know is that his love for you is not contingent upon your ability to believe his love for you. Did you get that? (laughs) Speaking of kids, in the first service, I asked that question. One kid said, no, no, 
Why didn't I get that? (laughs) So maybe I'll repeat it for you too. His love for you is not contingent upon your ability to believe his love for you. It just is. When you think about the question, you realize it's not yours to answer. Does God love you? That's not a question for you to answer. That's a question for God to answer. And God has definitively, fully, and finally answered that question himself. Not merely in words from a prophet like Zephaniah, but quite literally in the word made flesh. Jesus is his answer, and I don't have any other way to interpret Jesus than with a resounding yes, God loves you. So the question has been answered. Now, dearly beloved of God, fight to believe his answer. Like that old lady devoting a lifetime, fighting to believe that God loved her. Will you fight to do the same this Christmas? There's nothing more he can do to prove his love. The fight now belongs to us to believe him. So I'm going to ask you this again, and I'm going to ask you to actually what, do what our child did. I want you to answer it out loud. I'm giving you permission to talk. Presbyterian permission to talk. Here we go. I'm going to ask you a simple question that has been answered. I'm going to ask you a question that is not yours to answer, but God's, and God has already answered the question for you, and so you can answer it without a hint of reservation or hesitation. Christian, does God love you? Now, fight to accept what has already been answered. Let me pray. Lord, help us accept what you have answered and use this sacrament to do that. We have heard the love of God preached. Now may we taste and see the love of God in this meal. Through Christ we pray. Amen.